Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. Good to be with you all this morning. And worshiping this morning. I appreciated our time together. Sunday school class uh, stirred good discussion. Um, not necessarily pulling a sermon from the text that Mel read, even though we will uh, refer to that text uh, sometime throughout the passage here this morning. Um, several, it seems like it was several weeks ago, it was actually in, in January, I look back on my notes, is I had started a uh, message on the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer and uh, got about halfway through and so I'm finishing that here this morning. Finishing the sermon, the model prayer of the kingdom in this morning's message. I think we got to the section where it talked about give us this day our daily bread. Before we uh, dive into this, let's do just a bit of review of what the Lord's Prayer taught us in the first portion, and maybe even before we get there, I'd like to look at the, um, what Jesus said prior to uh, this model prayer of the kingdom. This prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. We have the account here where uh, we, we refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. In Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, we see uh, there in that passage, the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Uh, this was right after one of the occasions when Jesus was um, praying, and he was earnestly praying, and the disciples were present with him. And as they heard him pray, right after he was done praying, they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Matthew's gospel uh, comes right on the heels of the, uh, the almsgiving passage that we have. And I'd like to look at just that just a little bit this morning uh, to give us some context to the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus starts off by saying, when thou prayest, he says, first of all, he says what you should not do in prayer. And then he moves on into the teaching of what you should do in prayer. And I see that here in verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. So what, how did the hypocrites pray? What was it about the hypocrites that that Jesus said you should not pray like they do. I believe uh, maybe Luke's version is maybe a condensed version of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew's Gospel gives us more detail of the teaching, Jesus' teaching on prayer. Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Why should we not be as the hypocrites are? Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and standing in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. He said we should not pray like that. And so I tried to make myself a little mental picture of what this may have looked like. And um, the closest thing I could come to would be is if you would come to church on a Sunday morning 
and you would see certain people standing around and would be uh, making a show of prayer or somehow making an evident that yes they are uh, somehow more righteous because of what they are doing and praying i think in the uh, context here the um, the jewish people would often do these things especially the the pharisees and scribes and the rabbis um, Interestingly, as Jesus was teaching about prayer, what not to pray for and what to pray for, Jesus had a, was a rabbi, and he had a group of disciples. There was many other rabbis who did the same thing Jesus was doing, would have had a group of disciples, and there would have been a teacher. But something was different about Jesus and his, how he related with his disciples. And his disciples saw that. When they interacted with these other groups, these other rabbis and their disciples, they were clearly able to see that there's a difference in the way Jesus is teaching them than what the others were teaching them. And of course, so because he was the son of God. He says, you should not be like that. Another thing, uh, this is the historical thing regarding the Jewish uh, traditions. In the, um, the, the Pharisees and scribes, especially the Pharisees, they would wear these uh, tassels around themselves and at the end of this, this um, scarf-like thing they would wear, it had long tassels down at the end. And so these were like braided little tassels, and the longer your tassel was, the more righteous you were. And so oftentimes when they were praying, they would fiddle with their tassels as a show of their righteousness. And so I think maybe this played into this thing where Jesus was saying, we should not be like that, displaying or trying to make a show out of our righteousness. Um, he also says in verse 7, he says this is another way we should not pray. Um, Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. And then he goes on and says, you know that God already knows of all the things you need before you even ask. So we don't need to go and repeat the same thing over and over and over again to try to convince God to give us what we want. Now we can continue to ask and appeal in prayer, but not as in a repetitious kind of way. And according to tradition, these uh, people would do this. They would, the, the heathen, as it says here, would pray to their gods repetitiously, continually praying over and over again the same way. Jesus said we should not pray like that. <clears throat> not with vain repetitions. Jesus then goes on and he gives them a model prayer. And this, I believe, this prayer, if we were to live this prayer, it would give us a complete Christianity if we were to live this prayer. Now, many of us have grown up in settings where this prayer was repeated often. And we memorize this prayer, and we say it many times. In our family, it's about a daily occurrence. Um, maybe not quite, but oftentimes this is a daily thing for us. Um, and I realize there is a danger 
in praying a a prayer like this, where you do it repetitiously and you become kind of uh, numb to what you're saying. It becomes repetitious rather than being a real thing. I do believe, though, that we can pray this prayer and consciously know what we are praying for and be sincere from the heart. Uh, So I think it's okay to pray this prayer uh, as a memorized prayer, but Jesus gave it as a model prayer, a prayer that should give us direction in how to pray to God. So we could take this as a as a springboard, if you will, to pray spontaneous prayers to God, where we can approach God in the same way. So what can we learn from the prayer? The first one we learn is when Jesus begins this, he says, our Father, and the very first portion there says, uh, he opens up by saying, after this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I believe the first phrase there, our Father, um, gives us the idea that we are sons then. If we call God Father, then we are a son, and then we could pray to him as a son. The other thing I see coming through in the Our Father thing is when we say our, where it's plural, it's more than one. And so, notice in this prayer, there is no I, me, or my. No singular pronouns. But there are our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. And I believe something for us to learn here from that is we cannot say our Father unless we are willing to claim all of his children as our brothers and sisters. Which are in heaven. We should see things from God's perspective. Um, The ten, ten, uh, I like to think of the ten spies that went into the land of Canaan. They came back with different perspectives. Some said no. The others said yeah, God said he would deliver us and give us this land. So we can go and take this. So our Father, which art in heaven, um, has a, a perspective. <clears throat> we should see things from God's perspective. Hallowed be thy name. Um, I think it could be said in this phrase, in the hallowed be thy name. We should have a fear that we would do something that would smear or disregard the name of God. In other words, when we say, hallowed be thy name, what we really are saying is, hallowed be thy name in us, in how we live, may we hallow thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And here we are, we see he wants a society here on this earth that accomplishes a heavenly mission. And secondly, what I see coming through in this phrase is we pray for obedience. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That brings us now to where I had left off the last time. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, when I pray this prayer, 
I find myself oftentimes skipping over this section rather quickly and saying, give us this day our daily bread. What are we really saying when we are asking God to give us this day our daily bread? In our house, and I think it's probably the case for most of you here, um, our shelves are stocked with food. We can go down the basement and we could have enough of food to live for quite a while in our freezers, on our canned shelves. And so when I say, I find myself struggling a little bit when I say, give us this day our daily bread. What are we really saying? Give us this day our, our daily eggs and bacon and sausage and then for lunch, I'd like to have a sub. Then for supper, I want steak and potatoes and green beans or corn for those who don't like green beans. We have plenty, don't we? We don't usually find ourselves in the morning saying, oh, I hope I have enough of food till I get through the end of the day. What are we saying when we say, give us this day our daily bread? We all live with plenty. I believe we can, though, pray this in sincerity. After all, all the food we have, all the things we had, have are provisions that God has given to us. And so, in that light, we can come to God and say, give us this day our daily bread. I also see something else coming through here. If we have plenty, then we should be the kind that would be willing to give and be a hilarious giver. Be a giver who gives and gives and gives some more because we are, in fact, in a land of plenty. I've heard of a story of some children, uh, a um, orphanage in another country that was rescuing children from poverty. These children were impoverished. They were uh, malnourished when they came into the uh, orphanage and many of them were nearly dying before they got there. And so these children, even though they were now in a place where they were being fed and they had lots of food, nothing to worry about because of food, they would get three meals a day, well taken care of. They found that these children would go to bed and they would have anxiety when they went to bed. And the reason was, they found, is they were anxious for the next day, not knowing whether or not they would have food for the next day. So this brought anxiety in their, in their mind. And so what the missionaries did in this circumstance is they, every evening before they would go to bed, they would give the children a piece of bread and, give, and pray this prayer with them. And slowly these children began to relax and know that yes, God will supply my daily need. <clears throat> so I see us in, in, in um, praying this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We are in fact still relying upon God, even if our shelves are full and our freezers are full. Give us this day. It infers to the idea of complete dependency on God. I skipped one thing here. Notice how 
This goes, this transitions here in, in uh, Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread. Now this becomes, it, was, it went from uh, being about God, now it comes to drawing its attention to us. The first thing is our complete dependency on God. We're saying, God, give us this day what we need to survive. Give us this day what we need to sustain us for the day. <clears throat> Number or, um, the second one here, right after this one, is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here's another one of those phrases that I found myself skipping over many times as I quoted this. And in my studies here, I just again was reminded, you know, this, when we pray this prayer, this really is, says a lot right here. I saw something in here that I like to, maybe it's a little risky to do this, but I would like to hear from you on what you see coming through in this passage. It's something that came to my mind that I never saw before. And I don't know that I ever made the connection in praying this before. Um, give up and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins, you could say as we forgive those who sin against us, is, I think, how this could be translated. How does this as affect these two statements? Notice that it does not say, and forgive us our debts, and we forgive our debtors. And maybe you all can speak into this. I'd like to hear from you. So you're saying the as here refers to God's measurement of forgiveness to us or forgiving our sins is related to how we forgive other people. I don't know why it took me all these years that, and I hadn't never really made that real connection there. Some reason I always thought this is saying more like an and than an as. It's, it really brings, it makes this more sober, doesn't it? Because. Hmm. That's right. I'm not sure, Jonathan. Go on. That's right. It says later, Jonathan said, later in the, in the passage here, later in Matthew here, it talks about that he comes again on this. So, yes, that's right. For if ye forgive men their trespasses. That one? That's what you're thinking about? And that's the only part of the prayer that he comments on. That he comments on. Very good, Jonathan. <clears throat> Directly related to how we relate with our brothers. 
God's forgiveness to us. And this is, is sobering to me. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed that I was saying this prayer for all this time, and I had never made that as connection there. <clears throat> this concept of forgiveness, you know, it doesn't take long to be a part of a brotherhood or a part of a group of people working together, a church group, where this needs to be exercised. And sometimes when you think, okay, and I'm there, and then it comes again, and it comes again and again, over and over. I believe we need to continually exercise this. Forgiveness, I believe, is the basis for all healthy human relationships, and especially within a brotherhood. You know, there's things that are going to happen, things that will irritate you. There's things that are going to happen because of something you did sometimes, and we're just going to need to let it go and forgive. Forgiveness absorbs the hurt and the indignation and lets the other person go free. That's what Jesus did for us. Yes, we were wrong sometimes. We are sometimes mistreated and wrong. But we need to let the other person go. This is what Joseph did. And the very, at the, when Jacob died, the brothers, and the passage that Mel read here, the brothers became afraid. All of a sudden, they started thinking, oh, dad's not here anymore. Now Joseph is going to come, and he's going to make us pay. And Joseph, in fact, he says, am I in the place of God? Do I get to decide what your punishment should be? Do I get to take revenge on you? Joseph's response to his brother's concern about their well-being is very instructional for us as Christians. We should never put ourselves in the place of God in casting judgment or withholding forgiveness from a brother or sister. In Joseph's circumstance, sometimes, sometimes there's things that happen in life that are a result of our choices, right? There's sometimes when we make choices, and sometimes the choices we make will maybe hurt other people, and then we'll get angry at us, and then in response, we retaliate, and you get those kind of things going on. At that point in time, we can choose to forgive, right? And that came on because of our own choices that we made. There is some things in life that we don't choose, though. Joseph, for example, was one of those. He, there was a situation that came into his life that he had no control over. His dad said, go check up on the brothers. He went and checked up on the brothers. They sold him, and he was brought down into Egypt. All of that, those circumstances were completely out of Joseph's control. It was not related to a choice that he made. There's other things that you can think about that would happen in your life. Sometimes there's things that happen in our life that we have no control over. 
But Joseph chose the right response to life situations that came in his life. Corey Tan Boom, I'd like to just share a story um, with you this morning regarding Corey. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with Corey Ten Boom. She was a missionary in um, all the country left money. Um, Holland. And she was um, helping Jewish people escape the, uh, the horrors of the Nazi, regi Nazi regime. And so she, would, she had a secret compartment where she would hide Jewish people, was involved in an underground system where they would help these Jewish people uh, get away from the Nazi oppression. Eventually, she got found out. She was taken to prison and then eventually ended up in a concentration camp with other um, war prisoners, if you will. She was um, miraculously released. Uh, it said that she was released by mistake. And so she ended up coming out of, out of the uh, concentration camp, being set free and started um, traveling, later in life began to, again, helping those who were oppressed during the Nazi regime. And then she began to travel and tell her story of her time in the concentration camp and working with those who were oppressed in the Nazi regime, from the Nazis. So she was one day giving a speech at a certain place and uh, she saw in a crowd somebody who looked like a guard that she, was from, that she remembered from being in the concentration camp. And I'd just like to read a portion of that story here this morning. <clears throat> she said this. This was her recollection as she was uh, interacting with or speaking with the crowd, speaking and then saw the man. And then afterwards, the man comes up and wanted to greet her. So I'll read the account. I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I've been face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze, she said. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me, but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. He was talking to Corey. <clears throat> And the hand came out and he said, will you forgive me? Corey said this, I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, but could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking sheet? She added, she was reasoning within herself it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. 
The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Since the end of the war, Corey had started a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. No matter what the physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remain invalids. And it was as simple and as horrible as that, she recalled, of those in her home. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. In her pain, Corey turned to prayer. She said, I can do this. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And she said, you supply the feeling. And this is what she recalled of the interaction. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, they stood embracing. She says this. Corey credits God for, for, her forgive, for her ability to forgive in such circumstances. Here she was, face to face with one of those who had horribly mistreated her, and she chose forgiveness. She also said this, at 80 years old, if there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw fresh from them every day. Corey was very intentional and she's seen some of these horrors played out in the, um, in the, with the people she was trying to help. Those same people are the people that withheld forgiveness and allowed bitterness to well up in their lives because of the circumstances in their life ended up becoming invalids and useless to society. Those who were willing to let it go and forgive became very useful in the kingdom, in the work of the kingdom. She said this as well. She said, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free in this situation with this guard that she was talking about. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to find out that the prisoner was me. Corey Ten Boom. When we choose not to forgive, we only bring hurt to ourselves. It is the least we could do as a Christian is to forgive those who have wronged us. 
It's the very least we can do. Because in fact, we were, we were the transgressor. And Christ came and reached down and forgave us. Pulled us out of the married pit. Not because of something we did, but because of what he did. When we take the step and we move in obedience to God, he will take care of the rest. Irregardless of our feelings, forgiveness really is an act of obedience. And God will wait till we make that move. Hence we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And another way of saying it is, forgive us our sins in the same way that we forgive those who sin against us. Tremendously freeing thing to forgive, especially if there's somebody who does not come and ask for forgiveness, you can still forgive and be freed from that bondage of hanging on to bitterness we can still choose to forgive. All right, lead us not into temptation. I see these next two uh, phrases as being parallel statements. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Or deliver us from evil, I think it says. Um, that could, I believe, more properly translated would read something like this lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one um, if you look at the Greek words uh, the idea there is Satan himself deliver us from the evil one a person rather than evil itself in general lead us not into temptation what comes to mind when you think about leading not into temptation does God actually lead us into temptation? Will he lead us to be tempted? I don't believe so. I don't think that would be of God. Now, we do know that there was trials that came into people's lives, that God brought into people's lives. And I'd like to look at a few of those here this morning. Romans 3, 5, before we go there, says... Um, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We have stories of people like Job in the Old Testament. Abraham was tried uh, through Isaac and sacrificing Isaac. God tried Abraham. Um, Joseph was tried, uh, but especially Job. Uh, you have this story where um, Satan comes before God. Somehow that interaction, I still don't struggle with understanding that one, but Satan comes before God, and God asks what he was doing. He said, oh, I've been going around the earth, and kind of has the idea that, you know, it's just, the earth is my place, you know, and I got things pretty well under control down there. And... Um, God said to Satan, well, he said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan, oh, sure, yeah, Job, yeah, I know about him, but of course he's going to do, he's going to follow you if you supply all his needs. You put a hedge of protection around him, you bless him abundantly, he's rich, he's, he's got all he needs. Of course he's going to follow you. 
And then we know the story, God let Job, or God let Satan at Job, said only don't take his life. And Job faced some horrible things because of that. The death of his entire family, he lost everything he had, and you're familiar with the story. Now, the trial, I believe, is what's coming in. And, and, and the prayer here, I believe, infers to the idea of when we are in trials, keep us from being tempted to leave or forsake you. I think that's what's inferred here. The idea of lead us not into temptation. When trials come, lead us not into a time of despair or a time of, of forsaking you. But like I said, this is a parallel statement. The second portion of the statement says, deliver us from the evil one. The temptation is not the trial itself, but the temptation is to blame the trial on God or someone else. I believe we are to endure the trial without blaming others or God, but endure cheerfully, understanding that trials are for the perfecting of the saints. And Paul says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Deliver us from the evil one. We all want to be delivered, do we not, from the evil one. We want to be delivered from sin. We want to rise above that. We want to be delivered from our anger, our pain, the bitterness and broken dreams that oftentimes end up being a case. He says, deliver us from the power of the evil one. It's a beautiful prayer. And the ending of the prayer here, it's wonderful, my friends. <laughs>